Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Anxiety. It's that devil in the darkness that no one wants to talk about and everyone freaking has it. I've struggled with it my entire life. And today I am happy to have on Dr. David Rabin to have what will become the first of many conversations on a variety of topics. Dr. David Rabin, medical doctor and PhD, so you know he's a smart cookie, is a board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist and is the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience. Just an aside on the Apollo, it's possibly my favorite wearable technology I've tried to date, and it's the first scientifically validated wearable system to improve heart rate variability focus, relaxation, and access to meditative states, aka everything you probably want by delivering gentle layered vibrations to the skin. In addition to his clinical psychiatry practice, Dr. Rabin is also the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine and a psychedelic clinical researcher currently evaluating the mechanism of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy in the treatment-resistant mental illnesses. So like I said, this is the first of many conversations, and it was a bit of a brief one. Apologies for the sound quality on my end. It had nothing to do with Dr. Rabin's side and everything to do with my side, but we got into quite a bit. First off, what is the unspoken about anxiety? What are some quick steps that you can really implement in your everyday life to not only acknowledge the anxiety, but to quell it, if you will? And then we get into the Apollo, which, as I mentioned, is one of my favorite devices tried to date. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Dr. Rabin. That's D-R-R-A-B-I-N. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Rabin. We haven't heard from this sponsor in a long time, but it is great to bring back Blue Blocks. I just got out of European summer, which is the most challenging period of the year for me to get high quality sleep. Why is that? While the sun goes down at 11 p.m. and goes up at, or rises, if you will, at 4 a.m., light being the chief cue to our circadian rhythms makes it very, very difficult for me to get ample amounts of sleep. So light regulation becomes a very, very important thing for me. How do I regulate light, particularly in the evening and also working on a number of different startups? My number one go-to product are my Blue Blocks glasses. I have multiple pairs of them, actually, depending on what style I want to put on for the evening. And I use them to not only just regulate light from my computers, but also my home, because after all, all light inputs can influence our circadian rhythms. So where do you go to get your stylish orange glasses? I use the Sleep Plus at night and I use their daytime blockers, of course, as well. Where do you go? You go to Blue Blocks, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and they've actually got a few new collections out right now. So use the code DS15 and you're gonna get yourself 15% off your order. Let's get on with my conversation with Dr. David Raven. (laughs) 
Dr. Rabin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. All right. So opening the kimono a little bit, anxiety is uh, something that I've personally dealt with for the majority of my life. And so today I wanted to pick your brain because we have a ton of mutual friends uh, about that topic. And perhaps before I, I go into the first question, I got to give a shout out to Dasha for connecting us. So, you know, Dasha, thank you for the introduction here. Thanks, Dasha. Yeah. Miss so, you. Hope all is well over there. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Raven, one uh, the question that I would love to start with is when it comes to the topic of anxiety, the way we look at it currently, what as a society or what is the individuals, how are we handling this wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's two, two things really to start with. The first is that we look at anxiety as something that's unique to us individually. Um, and I think there couldn't be a more destructive way to think about anxiety because anxiety is universal to the human experience. Anxiety is a signal to our bodies that something is amiss in our environment externally around us or internally. Something is off. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, actually, at all. Um, we are often told that it's bad or that we shouldn't feel that way or that we're not supposed to feel that way or to feel ashamed about those, the feeling of anxiety. But the single biggest mistake that we tend to make with feelings like anxiety is that the anxiety, the, you know, or any way that it comes out, the restlessness, racing thoughts, um, consistent worry, guilt, shame, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on, um, you know, that this is not a good thing. And ultimately, it's not good or bad. It's just something that we all experience. Literally every single person on the face of this earth experiences this feeling. And this feeling is a, is a signal that is supposed to be there to guide us to figuring out why that feeling is there, in short, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? It's just a signal and that's all. And so I think when we step back and remove the, the, the good or bad from the picture, and just look at this feeling for what it is, that's the single first and most important thing that we can do as a and understanding it as a universal thing that we can do to get to the root cause of it and, and help us not feel uncomfortable about it anymore. Which, in fact, for most people, it's not the, the anxiety itself that's the problem for most people. It's the, the guilt or the shame that we should not or are not allowed to feel that feeling that actually makes it worse, right? Mm -hmm. and, and or that, that we are out of control of the feeling or how to do anything about the feeling. So that leads to the second most important thing about anxiety, which is that anxiety comes from, or what we call in our Western culture anxiety, comes from trying to control things around us that we cannot control. Yeah. And we only, uh, you know, the way to break this down most simply is that we only have so much attention available to us at any time, right? Many, many people throughout, throughout especially the last 100, 150 years, you know, since the advent of like consumer marketing uh, have talked about how our attention is our single most valuable asset as humans, mm -hmm. right? Where our conscious focus is on at any given time is the single most valuable thing that we have, which is what every advertiser, every marketer wants to capture, mm -hmm. right? That's why they have jobs is because they're good at 
pulling us in to focus on what they want us to focus on in the way they want us to focus on it. And that could be anything from video games to advertisements, commercials, you know, music, pop music versus classical music, right? Pop music is obviously more well-marketed in the marketing standpoint of capturing our attention than mm-hmm. classical music or jazz, right? Mm-hmm. And so even though jazz is technically, and classical music technically, are much more incredible forms of music than pop, mm-hmm. right? From, an, from a technical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, they're much more stimulating to our brains in positive ways than pop music. So thinking about it from that perspective, attention is our most valuable asset as humans. We only have so much of it at any given moment. Mm-hmm. to focus on one thing in front of us. We have, that's that with, within our awareness, what we call the conscious experience. So if that attention starts to get monopolized by things that we can't actually control, mm-hmm. then our anxiety starts to creep up and up and up and up every time more of that attentional resource of our focus is spent on thinking about the things in that domain that we cannot control our stress level goes up and our anxiety level goes up literally in a, in a liter, in a linear or in some cases an exponential relationship with respect to that. The reason why that's so important is because once we understand that very, very, these two very simple, relatively simple basic facts about anxiety, which neuroscience strongly supports um, and psychology strongly supports, then what we can do is we can understand how to manage it effectively. Right. Mm-hmm. So then the answer to these que- problems of how to deal with anxiety more effectively is that once we accept that we all struggle with it and that it's not good or bad, it just is what it is. And it's something that needs to be addressed. And number two, that it, it stems from devoting our precious, valuable re- attention, uh, resource of attention onto things that we can't control. Then the solution becomes abundantly clear, which is that to solve the problem of anxiety in our own life, we must learn to control our attention and attribute it to things that we can control rather than things that we can't control. Because as soon as we start to focus on things that we can control, one example being our breath, right? Paying attention to our breath. What happens is an instant response of safety and recovery that is literally happening almost immediately from the moment that breath enters, enters into, our, into our nose and our mouth and our lungs what our brain says, usually, and again, this is beneath our level of awareness, this is like a subconscious thing that goes on in our brains, mm-hmm. there's a highly evolutionarily conserved loop of information that says, if I have the time, and again, this is below our awareness, so our brain is saying, emotionally, if I have the time to pay attention to this thing that I can control, which is the feeling of air coming into my lungs and my nose and my mouth and then coming out again, I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. Mm-hmm right? Because if I was running from a lion, there's no way that I would be able to take the time to intentionally focus on air coming into my lungs. And it's the same thing with human touch, soothing touch. It's the same thing with soothing music and meditation and yoga and movement meditation and all these different techniques that are most of which are very old techniques, like tens of thousands of years in some cases. Um, These techniques work so well and have existed and continue to exist for so long in our culture because they work in this highly conserved neural pathway of safety, which is how we balance our stress response and our recovery response to nervous systems, which is right at the core of managing that anxiety. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Now, uh, oftentimes saying this and putting it into practice is, is very, very difficult. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, first part A of this question is why do you think it's such a big issue, especially nowadays, and maybe it has a lot to do with that A word you mentioned, mm-hmm. but also uh, like for somebody who's just grasping this, okay, you mentioned breath, you mentioned meditation, but what are some of the pattern interrupts that we can just sort of bring us back to, to that moment? Yeah, that's another really good question. So I think that starting the first question you asked is why is it so hard? Yeah. Um, so the reason why it's so hard is because when we've already been primed to be in a stress state, right? We're, we don't have, for most of us, thank goodness, most of us don't have the threat that we used to have 10,000 years ago or more of a predator coming to kill us or, mm-hmm. you know, us or our families or take away our food, water, shelter, air, et cetera, right? Most of us don't struggle with having to worry about those kinds of actual survival threats on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that our nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, which is involved in regulating that survival response, the fight or flight or freeze response, mm-hmm. gets, starts to get triggered by things that are not actually threat, but perceived as survival threat. Mm-hmm. So this could be anything from our kids screaming to traffic to emails to Slack pings to... Uh, the news to any number of different things that our brains and our bodies start to identify as threat. And our bodies in those states don't know the difference Mm -hmm. between those threats, which are not actually survival threats. They might be frustrating or annoying, but they're not actually survival threats. And the alternatives, which is an actual survival threat, like running from a lion in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So our bodies don't know the difference. It's up to our minds, which is why we have a frontal cortex, to train our bodies to know what is actually threatening and what is not. Mm-hmm. That gets down to why this is so hard. Because in humans and all animals, uh, the work of Eric Kandel really showed this. He won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for discovering the origin of learning and memory. And what was really phenomenal about his work is that it showed that practice makes perfect, which is something that we've heard for a long time but don't necessarily internalize. It's the idea that whether we practice good coping strategies or, or negative destructive coping strategies, like rejecting our anxiety and shoving it down and, and having it ultimately turn inward on ourselves, um, as one example, that those techniques that we practice, get, we get better at doing them. Even if they're bad or good, it makes no, or neutral, it makes no difference. The more you do it, the better you get and the stronger our neural connections get. And so as those neural connections get stronger, we, it becomes harder to reset old patterns. It's not impossible. It just becomes harder. Um, and so as we practice doing things one way, and then we realize that doing it that way isn't serving us anymore, we have to make a conscious decision to change our behavior and start practicing something in a new way, which then requires a bunch of effort and ultimately takes us out of our comfort zone yeah. because we have to embrace this thing called change. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, while it seems easy from the outset, is that our, our stress response nervous system, when we're in a, in a fight or flight or freeze situation and we perceive threat from our environment or in worst case from ourselves, which is very common in mental illness and anxiety, is that we our, our bodies oppose change mm-hmm. because change in and of itself becomes scary mm-hmm. and it triggers that fear response. So we cling to this idea of stability, but stability is just an idea. It doesn't actually exist. The whole world and everything is changing all around us all the time. Mm-hmm. So changing our mindset to embrace change as the, as the norm. Some people have heard the only constant is change. 
as a yeah. funny little uh, phrase. It's very true. The sooner we embrace that phrase as truth, the sooner that we stop focusing on trying to maintain this sense of stability, which isn't actually achievable. Stability is an idea that doesn't actually exist. So it's really achieving stability in the way that we think about it. It really means embracing change as inevitable and something that we need to learn to cope with and adapt to as best we can. Because if we learn nothing from evolution, what we are as humans are adapters first. We are the best adapters the world has ever seen. That's why we've risen to the place we have inside. We've literally adapted to every stress. I have no doubt we will adapt to this pandemic in an effective way. We will cope with this if we stick together as a, as a team working together to do this, just like every other tragedy going back to the Black Plague and the Spanish flu, we will get through this. Mm-hmm. You know, It's just that we have to embrace the fact that we are adapters first, not sedentary couch potatoes first. You know, We're not mm-hmm. clinging to the stability of the couch. We're clinging to the change and the ability that we have to embrace that. So that's the kind of mindset stuff that has to happen. Again, being stressed out directly impairs this. So it's constantly like butting heads over and over again. So mm-hmm. going again back to the actionable, the best way that we can embrace this and, and facilitate these interruptions in these negative thought loops and these anxiety patterns and this fear response that's overactive is to practice these ancient techniques of gratitude first, mm-hmm. right? So we call this often, and one of my patients actually came up with this um, term called the gratitude interrupt or the gratitude interception, Mm -hmm. which is when you start to have a thought that is unpleasant or to think about something in your life that starts to give you the sense of why me or why is this happening or, oh God, you know, what is going on here and what do I do about the situation? You find ourselves start judging the outcome before we even have fully appraised the situation, we teach ourselves to bring to, to, to do the gratitude interrupt, which says, in this moment, I am grateful for the opportunity of this challenge, mm-hmm. right? Not knowing what the outcome will be, not knowing why we're being challenged necessarily, and not judging the challenge as something necessarily, again, good or bad, and applying these ideas of what good or bad is to it before we even know where it's going. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, so the idea is that we heal by bringing ourselves back to the present breath work and, he, and soothing touch and meditation and mindfulness and yoga and all these techniques that are so old are so powerful because they're present focused techniques that bring us back into the moment where our decisions actually matter. We can't change the past. And we can't change the future. These are out of our control. What we can do is we can use techniques like gratitude practice and breath work and these different things that are some of the simpler practices to bring ourselves back into the present in times of stress and anxiety, and then remind us that we are grateful for being here now, as Ram Das says, grateful for being in the moment where our decisions matter, where we are in control of opportunity and where our free will actually exists. And in that present moment, we recognize the opportunity that we are safe enough to make change in our lives and it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. There's, there's a lot to go on there and <laughs> I, I want to just double click on something a little bit and this may go down kind of the neuroscience route, but it may lead us some other direction. So this idea w- where you have this inner voice that's saying, uh, I want a stable life and this stable life doesn't actually exist. We are constant adapters to change. Is that thing talking to you, your ego? And in which case, 
aside from the meditation and all of this stuff, which does take time to kind of control the ego, how do you shortcut that thing? Because the ego can grab a hold of you, and I've personally experienced this, uh, and just hijack your day in some cases. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, do I have that right first off? Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to think about it. I, I think that there's no one right way uh, but I think there's a lot of, there are some, some, I wouldn't call them shortcut strategies, but they're, you know, highly tuned strategies that have existed for a long time. Gratitude being a really important one okay. because the ego is another way of thinking of the part of our, of our consciousness, of our, of ourselves, the part of ourselves that is clearly focused on survival. Mm-hmm. So survival could mean what do other people think about me? and survival and my reputation or survival could mean actual survival issues, right? That we're dealing with. But the point is that our ego and the word ego is rooted, not in the present. It is rooted in the past and it tries to predict the future based on the past. Okay. So if we understand what that is, that experience of ego self, that the ego is trying to protect us. Mm-hmm. because it learns what it believes danger to be or threat to be, and then extrapolates that onto the future prediction of what coming up in our future might hurt us or might harm us in some way, then it helps us to understand the importance of that part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It also helps us to understand that by we have to balance that part of our brains with the present part of our brains, right? Mm-hmm. We have to, the, the future is only, we are only able to influence the outcomes of the future mm-hmm. by, in an effective way that serves us by taking everything we've learned from the past and then combining that with what we're experiencing in the present mm-hmm. and, th- and, and reminding ourselves of the opportunities to make sh- decisions now that will, are based on our past but are not dictated by our past. And that mm-hmm. these decisions that we make now have the power to change our future starting now. Mm-hmm. So the shortcut, if you want to call it that, is effectively a, the, is, is, are these techniques like self-gratitude, which is an ancient technique that stems from ancient Buddhism and Hinduism and Ayurvedic medicine and mm-hmm. tribal medicine, um, that is, and even going back to Hippocrates, uh, Hippocrates used these practices in his med- practice of medicine, is really, and, and many of this unfortunately has been forgotten in Western medicine, but it still now is, is, neuro, is backed by neuroscience and psychology. And what it does is it allows us to remind ourselves that we are safe right now. Mm-hmm. And when we're safe right now, again, using things, anything from breath to gratitude to self-touch, right? Putting pressure on the chest or touching the inside of our ear or our neck in these in nice ways can just with your own hands can rapidly induce a sense of safety in the body that doesn't require anyone else to be there mm-hmm. are all techniques to basically shortcut the, the brain to remi- remember and the body to remember that we are safe right now. Can mm-hmm. we predict that we're going to be safe every moment in the future? Of course not. Can we predict or can we, can we change our past to make sure that we are safe in every moment of our past? Of course not. But 
we can control our safety in the moment. So being able to, rem- to, to practice those techniques is critical because it helps to restore balance of the autonomic nervous system, which is this balance between the parasympathetic rest and recovery system, one side of the hardwired system that's in every animal from us all the way back to 300 million year old sea snails, all the way to uh, the stress response, which is, incre- in- which is the ego-focused response that is required and important for survival. It's not a bad thing. It's just that we don't want it to be active all the time. Right, mm-hmm. we want to be in control of it. So again, coming back to what we were talking about before, using these techniques like gratitude and breath and and things like Apollo and other other techniques that are very old techniques, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, self love. All of these techniques are are like skill sets that we can strengthen. Just the same way we strengthen our muscles working out in the gym. It's just mm-hmm. that if you're not taught the importance of these things and how to practice them and integrate them into your life. Like I, I wasn't necessarily taught all of these things, you know, it took time Neither to learn. Was I, right. right. Yeah. So, so once, so I think the question becomes for us, all of us in the present moment, you know, thinking about it from the context of your listeners right now who have never heard this, possibly never heard this before. Now that you know, and can understand and get a grasp of what we're talking about and why it's so important to seize the moment, which is the, literally the, the present time and the only time that we can manifest change in our lives. Will you continue to make the same decisions you've been making over and over and over again? Or will you think about and make a decision to take a different path and see where that new path leads? Right. And in some ways, what's so interesting about this is this is what psychedelic medicines offer us is they offer us an opportunity biochemically to alter the state of the body to show us that maybe there's not just one path that we've been taking the whole time. Maybe there's eight feet of powder on top of the mountain and we can ski wherever we want. First off, I love the analogy of the powder. And, but you took this in a beautiful way because I was going to ask you about where do psychedelics fit into this? When you're, uh, let's say you have a, a web of considerations of how to address one's anxiety at what point do you look at somebody and say, or, or at what point do you think that psychedelics are the right approach? Or should uh, people consider it? When you start looking at health and everything that you can be doing, it can be overwhelming. It can cause anxiety in itself. So sometimes as a busy person working on multiple different companies, I like to alleviate that anxiety. One of the ways that I do that in the form of movement is not just the X3 bar, but my new favorite technology is the B-Strong. B-Strong provides blood flow restriction training, which allows me to get a very, very effective workout in under 20 minutes. Yes, I'm maximizing hypertrophy, recovery, and able to get that effective workout again in under 20 minutes, which is absolutely incredible. So go over to bestrong.training and use the code BOOMER and you're going to get yourself 10% off. Enjoy the blood flow restriction, my friends, because it has been a time saver for me. Let's get back to the episode. So that's a really good question as well. And I think that's a question that a lot of us are asking ourselves um, mm-hmm. at a time where trauma in the world is and chronic stress are like ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so, so psychedelics or medicines are not for everyone, but I think that, you know, what's more important than thinking about psychedelics from the standpoint of, 
the way we have, you know, experienced them collectively as a society is that psychedelic does not mean crazy 70s dance party. It means mind manifesting. Mm -hmm. And mind manifesting, or the word psychedelic, applies not just to things like LSD and psilocybin and MDMA and cannabis and all these, you know, biochemical mind-altering psychoactive substances that are incredibly powerfully used in psychotherapy and unfortunately also recreationally abused, but it also refers to the tech, the way of accessing our subconscious in a meaningful way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what is more, what is much more important about psychedelics than the medicines themselves, which are great for some people, Mm -hmm. but not for all people, for instance, people who have bipolar disorder any kind of psychotic disorder and children under the age of 18 are probably, and and some elderly folks who have other medical illnesses are probably not the best candidates for psychedelic medicine. Mm -hmm. That said, the psychedelic experience in and of itself, where we work together either in an interpersonal way or through using breathwork or meditation or techniques like Apollo or something that effectively alters your, or slightly alters your normal ego sense of self, Mm -hmm. Is a, is a process that we can do without drugs, without medicine. It does not require medicine. And it's a process that people can experience on their own with breathwork and meditation. Mm-hmm. And, with, and by practicing you know, well-known techniques that allow us to access these states, which effectively helps us to see beneath the ego mm-hmm. into our subconscious space, the, the space that, you know, Subconscious may not be the best word, but the the other way to describe it is beneath our normal level of awareness, which Mm -hmm. is often what people refer to as like a dream state. Mm -hmm. And you start to be able to look beneath that normal level of awareness and say, hey, I forgot about all that stuff that was going on down here that I'm not normally thinking about in my default mode, ego-driven, productivity-focused day uh, where I have all these responsibilities, but that stuff is still there. Mm-hmm. And that stuff is actually impacting the way that I see myself and the way that yeah. I see my family and the world. So now that I know that stuff is there, how can I understand it better, approach it better from a standpoint of self-acceptance and love and non-judgment and start to pull out some of those things that I used to think were deficits or weaknesses, but are really just vulnerabilities and opportunities for further growth and Mm self-exploration. And how do I use gratitude, going right back to where we were before, to gently pull out that content from beneath my level of awareness and then literally manifest it in my regular conscious awareness of waking life Mm -hmm. in a meaningful way that allows me to access a more whole version of myself? not a version of myself that is only the version of myself that I believe people outside want to see mm-hmm. or, or the version of myself that people tell me they accept or that I be- I'm taught to believe that they want, but the version of myself that's just that much closer to who I really am yeah. and bringing those two versions of ourselves together. Because ultimately, there can only be one self. Yeah. And every every fracture of self into different versions of ourselves to present to different groups or different people or different whatever situations is another break that has to be resolved. It's another yeah. trauma of the of the self. 
Wow. Okay. So that Gabor Mate talks about this quite a bit, which is really interesting. If anybody looks up Gabor Mate, um, he's a fascinating uh, person, uh, physician who also is very experienced in plant medicine, ayahuasca. Um, and this is the, the the philosophy of tribal medicine that's been around for over ten thousand years. That ayahuasca shamans have worked with people to heal them in this way. Mm -hmm. So the fractured self is going to be when you and I get together and record around <laughs> two. Uh, connect the dots for me here between psychedelics and Apollo because, or, or even the, the states that we've talked about before, because I'm wearing it right now and I found it to be very, very effective in the past couple of weeks. I've had the chance to use it, but connect those awesome. dots for me. Sure. So when we're in an ego driven survival state, mm -hmm. like we're talking about our bodies, and our minds are trained and practiced to perceive that there is a real threat in our midst, mm -hmm. sometimes all the time. That, that threat could come from something outside of ourselves, or it could come from that sense of fractured self, that I am not comfortable with who I really am because I've been told that who I really am is not okay to be, mm -hmm. right? The, the most common example is, when you're a sensitive child and you're loving and caring and, and sharing, et cetera, and then you get bullied for it or you get picked on because people take advantage of you for being kind, right? And that's mm -hmm. one of the most common experiences that many of us have growing up um, that never, that, that takes a long time to resolve. And that, that is a, an example of, of an experience that creates a fractured sense of self mm -hmm. where we, and we bury our childhood selves. We become afraid of our childhood selves and we build a fear response to that childhood self that says, this is not okay to be this part of myself and to let this part of myself out into the world, right? So what happens is, as one example of that, as one example of that sort of cultivated fear response, we start to perceive part of ourselves that is literally one of the most fundamental deep down parts of who we really are as a threat. Mm -hmm. And that sets off that sympathetic fire flight response in our bodies all the time, which for lack of a better term or, or description, it makes us feel unsafe in our own skin. Yeah. And this is the biggest reason for self-medication and addiction. Mm -hmm. The single biggest source of addiction and self-medication is this exact phenomenon I just described to you. And it's, a, it's, it's like one of the deepest and most fundamental traumas that we all face. And some of us overcome it without falling victim to substance abuse and other, because we find other things to distract ourselves like work uh, or relationships <laughs> or video games or what have you. And then others fall victim to substance abuse and gambling and things of that nature, which are much more destructive. Um, Terrence McKenna talks about this in his book called Food of the Gods, which is written like 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And is if you read this book, it's like talking about what's happening today. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. and, and so where Apollo fits in is that Apollo is a wearable technology that delivers this gentle vibration to the skin that we figured out in, in our lab at the University of Pittsburgh could effectively remind the body of what it feels like to have someone soothingly touch you or what it feels like to take a deep breath in a moment of stress or fear, which immediately sends a signal to our brains as we were talking about earlier that says, even beneath our level of conscious awareness, it says, it, to our emotional brains and our amygdala, that fear center in the emotional brain that's in every animal going all the way back to er, you know, early reptiles, which is why we call it the reptilian brain, it sends an immediate signal that says, if I have the time to pay attention to this feeling, 
of somebody holding my hand or the feeling of air coming into my lungs or the feeling of something gently vibrating on my leg or my arm that I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. Mm-hmm. And so the body rapidly calms down and, and enters or facilitates entry into that recovery, more parasympathetic dominant state, which is suppressed by the stress response system. And so where psychedelics come in is that psychedelic medicines like Apollo are tools of change. Mm-hmm. Change is hard when we're stressed out. It's notoriously known to be difficult when we're stressed out because when we're stressed out and we're in this state of practice fear or practicing practice perceived fear from our environment, we literally interpret change itself as threatening. Mm-hmm. So how do you solve that? Well, in psychotherapy, the traditional practice is you help the, the client feel safe in the office in our presence. You build a trusting relationship with said client. And then that client learns to trust you to feel safe around you, to be able to talk about their deepest, darkest secrets in your presence in confidence. And then allows us to help them work through those deepest, darkest secrets and traumas and then help them figure out constructive ways to move forward. But again, that still requires them to practice and make change in their own lives on a regular basis without us there. Mm-hmm. So Apollo came out of this idea of how do we give these people something when they leave the office that can mm-hmm. be a constant reminder that you feel safe enough. If you feel safe enough to feel this vibration, you feel safe enough to make change in your life. You feel mm-hmm. safe enough to be present in your moment, in this moment with your body and recognize that in that moment of safety, you're also offered a moment of pause, which creates an op- which creates awareness self-awareness, but also awareness of the opportunity to make a different decision. And that's exactly how psychedelics work. Psychedelics, through the curation of a safe experience, again, safety being the key word here, that safety triggers that recovery response nervous system to turn on, which then biochemically, through the catalytic process of what the psychedelics are doing chemically to our brains and our bodies, reminds us to be aware of the opportunities right in front of us in the present moment to make a different decision for our health and well-being that's aligned with our goals, not necessarily just following the same pattern that we've been following for days, weeks, months, years, decades, our entire life that hasn't been serving us, but to actually recognize that there is a different path that we actually can take and it starts right now. Amazing. Technical question about the device itself, the wrist and the ankle versus other aspects of the body. And I was just kind of, you know, trying to figure out why. Uh, I, I know you have a lab and you've probably proven that they're most effective there, but how, how did you come and arrive to those two particular points? So we originally, it's actually not that exciting an answer. We originally came with up with those locations of the body because they were the easiest locations people to wear. Yeah, uh, something I mean, originally we tried the wrist and the chest in the lab. And what was interesting was we noticed there wasn't that much of a difference between the chest and the wrist in terms of the way the body interpreted the experience. It was almost identical. Mm -hmm. Um, We ended up choosing the ankle because we had a patient with Parkinson's disease who tried it on his ankle and had a dramatic result. And then that forced us to make a strap for him. And then I started using it um, on my wrist in therapy when I was as a therapist working with patients. And I realized that if I was calmer in the sessions, no matter what was going on in my day, that the, my clients felt better and we had better outcomes. So I sit with my legs crossed and I was resting my wrist on my ankle and I felt it through my ankle more than I felt it through my wrist. And I was like, wait a minute, this is way better when I feel this through my ankle than my wrist. 
Yeah. So what if we started using it on the ankle instead? And then through the client with Parkinson's, we started to make ankle straps and we actually tried it. And it turns out, I think 60 to 70% of people actually prefer the ankle. Because yeah, um, I, I have it on my ankle right now. And yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, because you know you have different wearables usually on the wrist, and so it's a nice thing to have an alternative on the ankle. But you've noticed that it's more effective generally for people on the ankle versus the wrist. Subjectively more effective. Okay. So okay. I think yeah, I think people tend to ha- enjoy the experience more on the ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's we don't have the clinical data looks relatively the same so far. We haven't seen any significant clinical differences that show the ankles better than the wrist. The only time that we have seen anything that's really meaningful is with sleep because mm-hmm. I think people don't like to have anything near their head that's making any kind of sound or anything like that when they're sleeping. And if you have something on your wrist that's vibrating when you're trying to sleep and you put it near your head or underneath your head then or your, or your partner's head, um, then they could feel that and that might be disturbing. So I think this, the fact that's, that it works the best for sleep uh, on the ankle and sleep is one of our biggest use cases that people really use Apollo for, um, has been a big driver of ankle usership. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Dr. Raven, I, I know, and I'm cognizant of time here, and I know I'm going to have a round two with you hopefully in the future. So I want to transition into a final four uh, rapid fire questions, if it's okay with you. Sure. So what's the book which has most significantly impacted your life? That's an easy one. Um, it's Eric Kandel's autobiography. Uh, Eric Kandel, as I mentioned earlier, won the Nobel Prize for discovering the origins of learning and memory in 2000. Um, he, he escaped the Holocaust um, and experienced very significant trauma in his own life uh, and then effectively figured out how to cope with that and became an incredible force in, in the field of science. And I think what's so impressive and his and his his autobiography is called um in search of memory mm-hmm. and it's a fantastic book and i think what's really incredible is it's told from his story um which is a, like a firsthand storytelling perspective he's a great storyteller but i think what's really amazing about eric kendall's writing is that he doesn't he doesn't say he's very open and honest he doesn't say this was me. I did all this and look how great I am. He literally names every or almost every person along the way who made his discoveries possible. And I think that is something that is so important for us to always remember is that we are, we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist in a community with many, many, many other people working towards ideally common goals in some cases. And you know, dissonant goals in other cases, but ultimately it's up to us to break down those silos between these different disciplines in our society, between science and business and medicine and, um, and marketing and, and really pull out the best of the best of all of these different uh, groups and, and pioneers and skill sets and try to come up with a better system that works better for everyone. Um, and Eric Handel's work was really inspirational um, on that level for me. Amazing. What's, your, what's your, the thing that excites you most about the health world at this moment? So I, so I think the thing that excites me the most is, you know, getting back to something that we didn't really talk about that much yet, but this convergence of disciplines, right? So mm-hmm. breaking the, what we're seeing now is like breaking down the silos of, um, Eastern and Western medicine being what used to be thought of as opposing 
opposing disciplines in medicine to complementary disciplines in medicine and mm -hmm. seeing the convergence between not only Eastern and Western medicine, but also tribal plant medicine with wearable technology and the insights that that can provide and psychedelic medicine and AI, right? And, and really trying to understand, again, not how just one of these things works independent of all the others, but how the best features of all of these things come together to create a better system for all of us that really supports on the whole, the needs of humanity, not the needs of Americans or the needs of, of, of um, Mexicans or the needs of like siloed groups of people or the needs mm -hmm. of minorities, but the needs of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. We are literally on the verge of a digital and psychedelic revolution with wearables and psychedelic medicines and psychedelic practices in general that is hybridizing Eastern and Western medicine to just create a more complete view of what healing is. And that is so exciting. And the opportunity to be able to be a part of that research, to be able to be a part of that clinical practice and the way we, we as a community usher these treatments, these groundbreaking treatments into our culture to, you know, create as an example with MDMA, um, potentially the first ever cure for a mental illness. I mean, wow. what could be more exciting than that? It's amazing. And it's great. You're in the part, you're right in the center of it. You're setting yourself up for many future recordings of episodes, Dr. <laughs> Raven. Uh, what's your top trick for enhancing focus? You may be a little bit biased here. <laughs> yeah. So I think I am, so I am biased towards Apollo because as a kid who is, who would have been diagnosed with ADHD, who was not treated with any medicine because my parents didn't believe in it. Um, I always struggled with attention and focus for extended periods of time. And I, and I will extend that to the caveat of, I have no problem focusing on things I enjoy focusing on for an extended period of time. But it's the things that I don't necessarily find immediately interesting that create the biggest challenge. And that's really yeah. the case for most people who have attention issues in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, having Apollo was, uh, you know, when, when we first developed the prototypes that were wearable that I could use in my day-to-day -day life, that was such a game changer because instantly I had something that I could literally just press a button and I'm in the zone for like two to three hours. Um, that was really, really helpful. Um, I can't tell you how helpful that was uh, for me in, in a, and having that in the end of my training was really just a, had a dramatic impact on my ability to perform well um, and also be at my best in very difficult trying situations like working in the psychiatric emergency room yeah. for 14 hour shifts, right? Like Whoa. these kinds of things are very, very difficult um, for us emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, so having that was incredible help. Um, I think that the other thing that really helped, which is maybe more meta uh, but still very important and probably the most important of all is recognizing that attention, focus, and concentration are these incredibly valuable things that we have and that we have the ability to train them. And that was something I learned, I think, in large part from the work of Eric Kandel again, you know, and understanding that like working out in the gym and training our muscles and our endurance and our cardiovascular system we can work out our minds and we can work out our attention and our concentration by 
teaching ourselves how to focus. And there are certain ways of doing this that are better than others. There are certain ways of learning that are better than others. You know, look at, look at uh, Jim Quick as one example, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are people who have come up with very successful methods for learning and memorizing things and not just learning and memorizing, internally understanding phenomenon and integrating them into a greater understanding of the world and ourselves, right? Not just memorizing it for the time being, right? Mm-hmm. So we can do well on a test. And so I think for me, learning how to learn and learning that, you know, learning is not something you're born with. Concentration is not something you're born with. It's something that you actually, it's up to us to train. It's up to us to understand that we can train these skills and that by training these skills and practicing how to train these skills, we get better at them. And then we actually improve our memories and we improve our focus over time and we improve our capacity to take on much more complex and difficult projects um, or endeavors of any kind, whether that's raising a family to starting a business. Um, all of these, th- like all of the, that whole idea of, of you know, really deeply internalizing, accepting that we have the ability to train ourselves in this way was game changing you know? And I think for all of us, when we recognize that we have this ability, it opens up all these doors to say, well, if I have this ability, how do I make the most of it? Mm-hmm. Right? So that was a huge step for me, which cognitively really shifted the way that I saw myself and my own abilities, you know, uh, from being a kid who's just always distracted to being a kid who actually does have some agency and ability to control the way he feels or thinks in the given moment. Amazing. Where can people find out more about you? So probably the best place is my personal website, um, which also links to my clinical practice. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist uh, by practice, and I see patients currently. So you can find out more about me and my practice and my different work that I do on drdave.io. And then you can reach out to me there via email, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Dave Rabin or on Instagram at Dr. David Rabin. And if you want to learn more about Apollo, you can find us uh, uh, at apolloneuro.com or at apolloneuro on Instagram and at apollo underscore neuro on Twitter. Dr. Rabin, this is the first of many conversations. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. To all the superhumans listening out there, check this one out on YouTube or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Thank you. That episode felt A bit rushed, but was incredible in itself. We're going to go a little bit deeper with Dr. Rabin because I would love to pick his brain specifically about the convergence of Eastern and Western philosophies and modalities for treatment. And he is extremely knowledgeable in that. If you enjoyed this episode and if you want a round two, three, four, five, please share it on your social medias. Tag Decoding Superhuman on Instagram, LinkedIn. Those are probably where I'm most active, but you can also find me on various other channels. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Each review helps immensely in terms of getting the word out. And I really, really appreciate all of you who do such a thing. Thank you so much. Have an absolutely epic day. And remember, choose health.